0: Welcome to Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkin Kazarian. On today's show, we're hosting Dr. Betsy Cooper, Executive Director of Berkeley's Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. Betsy comes from UC Berkeley from the Department of Homeland Security, where she served as Attorney Advisor to Deputy General Counsel and a Policy Counselor in the Office of Policy. She's also a Yale graduate, which uh-huh. is always a great connection, and... Um, Not only she works for the government and is now in academia, but before this, she was also in the private sector. So she has the experience in the cybersecurity world from every single perspective, which is why I wanted to have her on a show. Betsy, thank you so much for coming. Happy to be here. So Betsy, I wanted to have you on to talk about cybersecurity and start from a little bit of a high level stuff. So what is cybersecurity? We keep hearing about it. It's all over the news in connection with elections, in connection with Apple watches that track our soldiers who do runs, in connection to what we watch on Facebook. It's it's everywhere. But what is
1: it? Cybersecurity is a series of concentric circles. Uh, at its at DC levels, we tend to think about it as the way that governments engage with each other and try to think about how to attack each other's IT systems. It's also commercial, so it's the ways that we protect all the different things that we engage with in the private sector and try to keep those secure so that we can engage in commerce, get our bank records, get our healthcare records. And then I think at the biggest level, cybersecurity is really about how we think about where technology and society intersect and the most important things that give rise to security concerns. So you can think about the workforce and how we're going to try to protect that for the future. You can think about uh, artificial intelligence and how that will change the way our society works. So cybersecurity is really that intersection between technology and security, and we're trying to think about all the different ways that it intersects.
0: So what do you think last year, we talked a lot about cybersecurity in elections and government hacking. The Apple versus FBI case was a big thing. It was on, more on the encryption side, but it was still, you know, important as, as a way the government approaches all of these tools that the private sector creates for consumers. What do you think will be the biggest topics security, in the cybersecurity world of 2018?
1: Well, so I think the election is going to continue to be at the forefront. Um, Unsurprisingly, uh, people are very concerned as we head into the 2018 midterm elections as to whether or not our voting systems are secure and whether they can be manipulated. Um, we have the Olympics coming up in just a few weeks. And so there's definitely the possibility that something could happen in that space. And at any major sporting event, there's always going to be concern about protecting it. And so uh, if there were to be a major hack relating to that, I think that'll be really important.
0: And as a Russian citizen, I also want to have a side note that there might be, you know, some repercussions from the Russian hackers who are very upset about the way Russia was left out in a way out of the Olympics.
1: Although I hear that an awful lot of Russian athletes will be competing, just not under the Russian flag. So
0: it's all about the country pride, though.
1: That is definitely true. Um, and then I think there's also healthcare is another area that we should really be watching. Um, I've heard early uh, returns suggesting that ransomware attacks against healthcare providers are up even more than they were this, you know, this past year. Or so uh, you can expect to see a lot of interest in the healthcare arena in terms of cybersecurity as well.
0: Last year we. Or we were all a little shaken, as I was, with the cyber breaches that uh made available social security numbers. However, it didn't seem to take off in the sense that it didn't change any policy on, on, on the, you know, federal level. There was no there was a hearing, the Equifax hearing, but nothing really changed or no bills were passed, no measures were taken. And I, I just wonder what was do people not care? Do they just assume that all of their information is already out there?
1: Well, so a couple of different things. I think on the consumer level, you're hitting a really important point, which is that the average consumer still has not seen Real tangible effects from any of these hacks. Um, I myself have probably been hacked at least five times, and other than having to replace my credit card and being without it for a day or two, I even haven't seen any real tangible effects. Um, And so, for the average consumer, they're still trying to understand why this cybersecurity thing matters. Why do they need to have secure passwords if at the end of the day, the worst that happens to them is that they have to take a few fraudulent charges out of their bank accounts? I mean, yes, it's a nuisance, but it hasn't really been seen as more than a nuisance. But then layered on top of that is sort of this question about how governments are behaving. And there's a couple reasons why I think, uh, you know, the U.S. government hasn't taken tons of action. Um, First, I think to the extent that action has been taken, it's generally outside of public visibility. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the background, but you don't want to let the hackers know exactly what you're doing and why, because then they're just going to try to take advantage of that.
0: So there's some kind of cyber shield being created, and I want to apologize to Shane Tews, who really doesn't like when we add the word cyber to any other word, <laughs> but there's some kind of cyber shield happening that protects America that we potentially don't know because if we don't know, the bad guys don't know either.
1: I, I mean, I'm not saying that, I, I'm not sure that there is a cyber shield being developed, but I do think that to the extent that you want to implement executive policy um and that you want to do new techniques in order to protect the united states you don't necessarily want to make all of it public mm-hmm. because then that tells the hackers exactly how you're doing it and yeah. therefore how to get around it um i think you're also alluding to the on the congressional side though there hasn't been a lot of action and i think that's not because people don't care it's just be uh, in it- uh, visibility into our congressional system, which seems to be broken on a broader level, not just in this space. So uh, so there hasn't been a lot of congressional action generally, not just here. So uh, I, I do think that, uh, for instance, the National Defense Authorization Act did have some interesting cybersecurity provisions in it. They were relatively minor and relatively non-controversial, but it has shown that Congress is interested in this space. I just think that things are moving a little bit more slowly publicly, both because of the way that our congressional system is working pretty slowly generally, and because when we do do something, we don't necessarily want to make uh, it all public.
0: But the private sector side of this, companies will lose customers if they're not secure. I'm the first person who will say, chip me, put a chip in me who and track me as much as you want if I don't have to carry my phone and my card and my passport with me at all times everything about me can be accessed one way or another. So I've just accepted that fact. But I don't think a lot of people have. And I think our understanding of privacy is shifting very slowly on the societal level. And the courts are way slower behind too. You know, if you look at the Supreme Court cases, like the Carpenter case that is getting decided, all of that, courts are just catching up to the technology that is developing. But the private companies are at the forefront of this tech that is trying to protect us and also gather the most sensitive information ever. My watch knows more about my health than my doctor. Mm -hmm. So what are, maybe you can talk a little bit about what the companies are doing, what's the most innovative or creative or protective thing that we should all look at as an example?
1: So I uh, divide out companies into a couple different categories. First, there are internet companies, which basically is every company at this point. But there are companies that function on the internet, and they're not trying to do cybersecurity as their business model. They're just trying to get by. Um, and it, many of those companies do care deeply about the cybersecurity practices that they have because, as you said, if they get breached, they may face fines. They may face uh, you know all sorts of repercussions from their customers. Um, how However, I would actually push back a bit and say that actually a lot of companies have not taken as much care as they should uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, oftentimes, even if something bad goes wrong, uh, they actually still don't seem to suffer that much. So Equifax is, you know, actually up uh, in the stock market, not down, despite the Equifax breach. That came up in a conversation we were having on a panel at State of the Net earlier. Um, So it's a really interesting time in which actually you can get breached, and it's actually not that bad for you. And so a lot of companies haven't actually worried as much about the effects of a breach as you might think otherwise. I also think that even when they do care, and this would be especially true for small businesses, they don't know what to do about it. So if you do actually uh, feel like you need stronger cybersecurity, who do you call? Who is the organization that you call to protect yourself? There are lots of vendors out there all saying that they want to protect you. How do you distinguish the snake oil from the real business models? I don't want to necessarily comment on one vendor or another and what they're doing that's great or that's bad. Uh, As a nonprofit university, uh, it's not really my place to send people in a particular direction. I do think generally the corporate trends that you'll see this year really focus on using machine learning and accountable algorithms to try to tell you whether or not your uh, system is being breached or not. A lot of these technologies are a little bit of snake oil, so be very careful when you're deciding who to go with. and i do think that it makes it harder for uh, us to understand exactly what those technologies are doing when they're scanning your network on the one hand they're potentially able to identify vulnerabilities on the other hand they're seeing your whole network and that's a vulnerability in itself because someone else can come in using that technology to get to you so it's almost a chicken and egg problem how do you know which system is actually protecting you or making you more vulnerable i
0: get a lot of emails with documents that have principles, cyber principles, or committing to some kind of cyber protection guidelines, above word is guidelines. There's a lot of guidelines on state level, uh, in just law review articles, in NGOs publish them. All of them are very high level, smartly worded, long ass documents that don't really go anywhere, aside from taking hours of my time, I guess. Um, I was just going to ask you, do you see value in kind of talking about this on on that level? Or where is the connection? So you just told me that, you know, private companies don't do that much. We don't really know what the government does, but hopefully does enough. Where is the connect between the thought leaders, the great people who write these guidelines um, and principles and implementation? who should be responsible for that connection?
1: Well, so it's a really important question. I think one of the difficulties is that there is disparate treatment of who actually implements. Um, So on the one hand, many companies will come and say, please don't regulate, just let's do industry standards and we'll take care of it ourselves. Um, And in many cases that can work, but the question becomes what happens when it falls down, when something goes wrong, who's actually uh, responsible? So an interesting example might be in the case of autonomous vehicles, right? You might not think that uh, industry uh, standards are enough when you actually have the safety of the person in the car uh, available uh, and you might want somebody to be able to come in and do a recall or to get to, uh, those opportunities. So uh, so it's a really difficult question uh, as to determine who should be responsible in that case. So then on top, layered on top of that is when a government entity does regulate, which one should it be? So you actually have a really disparate set of government actors involved in the space. You have the Department of Defense, which is focused more on on the defense side, but also has a lot of intelligence capabilities through, you know, Cyber Command and NSA uh, being uh, at least uh, up until recently housed together and working together. You have the Department of Homeland Security, which is where I used to work, um, and they both have policy capabilities and also, you know, sort of a lot of information gathering uh, uh, equities as well. And then you have the FBI, you have the Department of Justice, you have the Department of Commerce with NIST and doing a lot of that sort of standard setting. So, you know, you basically end up with so many different actors that nobody, both everybody and nobody is in charge. And so the Obama administration did try to put out some guidance as to where you go in these sorts of situations. Uh, But... The guidance is still pretty ambiguous, and I would say I've not necessarily seen the implementation match the guidance either, so um, it really depends on who you know and what your engagement is. So I do think that that's an area where clarity would be really helpful, um, and potentially some form of restructuring so that there is an entity to which it is front-facing and you can go in and get access to all these different services yourself.
0: Well, whoever is out there who is listening to us, maybe you're the missing link. Staffers, (laughs) people who work in agencies, please be the missing link. Be the change you want to see in the world. Um, So you mentioned autonomous vehicles. I wanted to talk a little bit more about AI and cybersecurity, because AI is definitely the next big thing that everyone is excited about. Oh, it's already
1: the thing. It's not even the next big thing. It's the current thing. It's already
0: the thing. It's just fascinating that not a lot of people still understand. The same way we don't understand what cybersecurity is, we don't understand what AI is on, on a high level. But how do they connect? How does cybersecurity and AI connect? Those worlds collide in what way?
1: I think in multiple ways so first and most simply you machine you know we get confused between machine learning and AI so let's start with that um, AI artificial intelligence is really thinking about the future in which machines have cognitive capabilities that reach the level of intelligence. We're not there yet in in the most meaningful sense of the word we're starting to think about what happens if we get there. But along that path, how would you get there? You would use systems called machine learning, which would enable machines to respond and essentially to come up with new ways of, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to use the word thinking, but, uh, but new ways of responding to inputs. Uh, basically, you get training data. You put that training data in the machine. It learns based on the training data, and then it can modify what it's doing based on that. Um, And so the most simple example many people may have heard of is Watson, the Jeopardy computer, quote unquote, used machine learning in order to respond to these systems and to beat the best Jeopardy players in the United States. So um, so now, if we have machine learning as a system and we have a goal of achieving artificial intelligence, uh, you can question whether that should be the goal, but you have that. Now when you think about cybersecurity, you can use this sort of technology in a number of ways. Uh, first, you can use machine learning, uh, both, to, uh, both hackers can use it to try to get people to Make decisions. So, for instance, uh, you can imagine a system in which phishing schemes could get a lot more accurate very quickly if you can use machine learning and uh, you know large-scale data collection to be more accurate. So, uh, imagine that phishing email. Uh, I'm a big fan of gymnastics as a sport, and so uh, somebody could probably very quickly find that out about me. Just look at my Facebook page. I probably have pictures. I you know have done a lot of research on Olympic sports, including gymnastics you are much more likely to get me to click on uh, a phishing email if it's about gymnastics because my my interest in it will outweigh my skepticism. Uh, So a machine learning algorithm that both uses widespread data collection and then uses training data to enable the phishing scam to be more personally tailored to me could be very effective. So that's the first thing hackers could use it. Then of course Uh, the response, the defense could also use machine learning. So you can figure out using machine learning, how to identify that phishing email more effectively and use that in the response category. And then third, uh, machine learning is going to make it even more interesting as we incorporate that into our day-to-day lives in many, many increasingly meaningful ways. So for instance, it'll be harder to tell whether you're talking to a computer or talking to a human, and that makes it more difficult to sort out What is a security threat and what's not? So I think you're going to start to see this intersection grow as hackers incorporate it, responders incorporate it, and the broader ecosystem of the way we interact on the internet incorporates it.
0: My imagination brings me to a place where there is a Jarvis kind of AI from uh, Iron Man fighting an evil Jarvis. Like, you know, two AIs just Going at it for cybersecurity tools.
1: I think that's probably the future, at least to machine learning uh, sides. I, I still am yet to be convinced that we're quite at the threshold of true artificial intelligence. Um, it seems that machines are very good at learning a particular thing, but not in changing what that particular machine is meant to do. We might get there, but I don't think we're there yet. But definitely a machine learning system that is able to respond more effectively to cybersecurity threats is combating a machine learning system that is trying to hack at precisely those, uh, those systems.
0: We said the word hackers. The word hackers is thrown around a lot. In our little 101 on cybersecurity, what are hackers? Because, you know, a lot of people here. White hats, black hats. There's a lot of terminology that I even get lost in after a day or two. So who are hackers? Are they the good guys, the bad guys, the 300-pound guy in the basement, I think it was
1: 400. 400? (laughs) (laughs) So so hackers is, uh, I think you're absolutely right, it's a buzzword much like cybersecurity that uh, has not been clearly defined. Um, I think in the field of cybersecurity, it could be both the good guys and the bad guys so white hat hackers are generally referred to as the good guys they're the guys that are trying to protect us using hacking techniques using you know computer systems uh, trying to code in order to you know either build technology that will prevent uh, bad hackers from getting in the door or they're trying to test systems and uh, try to ensure that there are no vulnerabilities in those systems so that's the technique called penetration testing then you'll have sort of the bad guys on the other side, the hackers that are actually trying to cause harm. So those are the folks that are sending you the phishing scams or the people that are actually trying to maliciously insert code to collect your credit card information. Um, And so it's a combat situation between those two systems. And between different types of hackers. Then, uh, overlaid on top of that is sort of a hacker culture, which I think a lot of people would think about as just you know sort of the DEF CON or the Black Hat conferences. It's the places where lots of different folks interested in these security questions tend to meet up and engage with each other. And so I think we do have to be cautious when we're using the term hacker, because it can get so easily meshed between the good guys and the bad guys. But basically, at this point, it refers to the entire ecosystem of folks working on cybersecurity.
0: And for my favorite segment, which we do in the in the, end, the women in tech one, you've had, and you are still having an amazing career, and you've done so many different things across continents. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your journey, how you ended up in law school in the first place, then in the government, and then in the private sector, and then in academia? What, what were the outliers? What was your inspiration behind it?
1: Yeah, so my career has been kind of interesting because I certainly didn't start either in tech or in cybersecurity. Uh, I was working for many years on homeland security, immigration, countering violent extremism, uh, spent some time in academia doing uh, doing a doctoral dissertation on those topics. Um, when I came to law school, I really discovered a passion for tech issues. I worked at Yale helping to found the Media, Freedom, and Information Access Clinic. Uh, worked with a great uh, faculty member over there, Jack Balkin.
0: Hello, Professor Balkan. Hi, st-
1: Professor Balkin. This is your
0: second shout out this month.
1: <laughs> but so I had I decided to write a paper. Uh, one of my uh, writing requirements actually at Yale. Yes, we have to write stuff, I swear. Um, and it was on Watson the Jeopardy computer and I looked at how Watson and this is back of course in 2011 I think Watson has since been used as a buzzword for machine learning systems generally but at the time it was focused on Jeopardy and the article that I wrote focused on how uh, Watson the Jeopardy computer could be used to help judges make decisions. Um, I tried to patent this idea but it didn't quite succeed so IBM it's for you. Um, So I sort of, when I left law school, figured I'd just go right back to my immigration. You know, I went to clerk. I then... Ended up uh, trying to go to the department to work on specifically on immigration. And totally by happenstance, my bosses actually left. Uh, there was a transition in administration, and the person I was supposed to report to wasn't there anymore. And so I ended up kind of without a job and needed to find something to do. And so I ended up actually taking my tech sort of experience back and working on cybersecurity instead. Uh, so it was a very interesting time in which you know, I was sort of handed a portfolio working on the quadrennial Homeland Security Review, working on issues of child exploitation on the internet, completely random issues that I never thought I'd be involved with, but was very interested in understanding that intersection between tech and, you know, sort of the vulnerable populations between tech and how we were going to protect ourselves on the internet. And so I really started pulling that into my career from there. And so uh, it was at that intersection that I saw this great opportunity to move over to Berkeley and to help build this institution focused on the future of cybersecurity, to really help understand not just what was happening today, but where we needed to take this system for tomorrow. And so that was what really led me to hop over to Berkeley. there for about two and a half years now helping to build the center and really trying to find those intersections with the issues that many of us care deeply about because the internet is not just a place where we play anymore it's a place where we work it's the place where actually much of what we do happens and if we don't figure out how to make that secure then all those values that we care about won't actually be able to happen anymore and so it's that issue that i care about uh, really deeply.
0: Please keep fighting the good fight. We all are so grateful for that. Uh, Thank you so much for joining the show. We really hope you come back, and best of luck with all of your projects.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks again, Ash.
0: Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Tech Freedom. Please leave us a review so others can find the show. Thank you for joining us. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed
1: by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, a tax-deductible donation or find other episodes,
0: find us online at techfreedom.org.